Broadcasting from the Mid-Migration Outfitter Studios, this is the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast. How much direction are you getting from the governor? Minnesota DNR had reintroduced him into this area. I don't know, maybe you didn't want me to tell the story on the show, but I'm going to tell it anyway. I I knew you were going to go there. I'm going to close the entire hunting season. Oh, really? The Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast is brought to you by Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx. By Hay Bale Heights on Devil's Lake. Visit haybaleheights.com for more. By Ottertail County. Find your inner otter at ottertaillakescountry.com. And by Lake of the Woods Tourism. Plan your trip to Lake of the Woods at lakeofthewoodsmn.com. All right, here at Sporting Journal Radio, we feel it's really important to uh, get involved, make sure that you are speaking up when it comes to issues that are important to hunters and anglers, be a, be a member in uh, various advocacy groups or uh, conservation organizations. And we're going to talk about one right now that's uh, been been very active the last few years. It's Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And we have a few guests to join us on the show right now. We've got Aaron Haybison, the chapter coordinator uh, from Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, Illinois, and Missouri. Aaron, how you doing good Brett. thanks for having us welcome to the show also uh, tim brass the field operations and state policy director tim thanks for coming on the show you bet thanks for having us and matt lee the minnesota chapter chair matt how you doing great great it's a pleasure to be here so tim you're from minnesota originally but now in colorado is that right yeah that's right yeah i grew up just outside the twin cities in stillwater um, and jumped around a little bit, lived in Wisconsin for a bit, then Oregon, and now I live in Colorado. What what made you end up in Colorado? Um, so I was working out of Oregon. I was working for the U.S. Forest Service, and my wife decided that she was interested in going after a second master's degree. So as she was making that leap, we were looking for to live that was still uh, you know close to public lands and close to the mountains uh, but was also closer to family and my brother lives up here in Fort Collins and so that was that was kind of the short of it you also worked with the cooperative North American shotgunning education program what the heck is that I did, yeah. Yeah, I worked for a guy by the name of Tom Roster, um, who has done a great deal of research over the years uh, with regards to non-toxic shot. And as the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service was implementing the non-toxic shot requirements for waterfall many years ago, um, Tom was pretty instrumental um, in that process. And you know, since then has helped develop a lot of the educational materials, uh, the, those charts that you find either on the side of your box of ammo or, um, you know, inside the regulation books, which provide recommended shot size for various species of waterfall. Uh, he was, uh, you know, a, a key researcher um, in pulling all that together. So uh, my work was more focused on doing research on some of the new higher end tungsten alloys, uh, heavy shot and so forth. Um, so yeah, it was a great job and, uh, never thought I would actually get paid to hunt, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Good gig if you can get it. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what do you think about the the future here as far as non-toxic goes? I, I think you'll see lead eliminated from all um, hunting, at least, uh, particularly on public lands in the near future, I think. Yeah, that may be. Uh, I think that as an organization, BHA has really adopted a voluntary approach. We are formal partners with the North American Non-Lead Partnership. And as part of that uh, partnership, the goal is really to provide educational materials and make sure that hunters have the information needed to make a, a good choice um, when they had, had a field. Um, and so that's been the approach we've been taking uh, to date. We did a story on copper bullets for rifles versus lead for uh, for deer hunters here in Minnesota. We did a segment on Prairie Sportsman, and I was I really hadn't seen that type of demonstration before. I hadn't been there at least uh, to witness it firsthand, and just to see the fragmentation of lead versus the retention of a copper bullet, uh, I, you know, just the amount of lead that I probably ingested from eating deer over the years back when I used to rifle hunt quite a bit. Uh, you know, I don't want to eat lead personally. I don't like it, and the, their big push when they put that demonstration on was also not a mandate to non-toxic, but a voluntary uh, effort. And the reasoning behind that saying that if more and more people get into shooting non-toxic, that's going to increase demand, uh, that's going to increase production, and that's going to bring down the cost of production materials and production machinery. And then the, the non-toxic alternatives, uh, the prices will come down and then become more affordable, more comparable to lead prices. And then people will just stop shooting lead because it doesn't cost any less at that point. Absolutely. And I, yeah, I think that's that's exactly the approach that we have taken as an organization. Um, and I think the, the market forces that you mentioned, I think, are it's a long term um, kind of development. And especially given some of the ammo shortages right now, I think that really, you know, really is is particularly true at this moment. Um, but you know, I shoot copper myself and for the very reasons, uh, you described there, uh, you know, I've, I've seen, seen what, what it can do and you, you know, maybe hit a bone that you weren't intending to, um, and have actually seen some of the fragments, um, in, in, an animal that I shot. And when my daughter was born, I just decided that was a pretty simple choice. And, uh, yeah, switched over to shooting barns a few years back. Yeah, it's uh, it's really amazing. And I mean, I never hit. I mean, my shots are perfect every time. But <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> now, all right, well, let's talk about BHA a little bit. Uh, and as a as an organization, what you guys stand for and what what is the overall goal of backcountry hunters and anglers? Yeah. So we are a nonprofit sportsman conservation organization. We're membership driven. Um, and we were organized by a group of folks out of Oregon uh, who got around a campfire and decided that, you know, they, there really wasn't a sportsman organization out there that spoke up for that DIY public land hunter and angler who really valued that solitude, that challenge and the reward that our public lands and waters provide. And so this group of folks, um, this was, yeah, I think, as I mentioned back in 2004, um, this group of folks took it upon themselves to start to recruit folks into the ranks 
and you know build a voice for hunters and anglers um, that would really speak up for all species um, those large intact tracts of, of fish and wildlife habitat and the, the backcountry landscapes as the, the, the name suggests. So, uh, you know, our focus of work has really been around access and opportunity, um, public lands and waters conservation, and then uh, a little bit of work on fair chase, um, namely um, banning drones and also working on some of the captive servid issues uh, on a state-by-state basis. So. And what does a what does a state policy director do? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, I'm the state policy and field operations director. So I kind of wear two hats, but I uh, work with our field team. Uh, we have 17 field staffers across the country. Um, Aaron is uh, one of our newer hires. Um, and help work to support them and the chapters um, to help help advance uh, our work at, at the chapter level. Um, and so, yeah. What, I, I probably should have warned you that I was gonna ask this question, but uh, when, when you deal with politics as much as you do, is there, is there a stance uh, you know, does BHA say we're, you know, we're neutral when it comes to, you know, left, right, center, things like that. And there's accusations you guys be in one way or the other. What do you tell people when they, when they ask you about that? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, we are a bipartisan organization and we really strive to advance policy that has bipartisan support. And I think that that approach really reflects our membership base. Uh, When we poll our members, uh, we have consistently found that our members are very diverse politically, um, as well as demographically. You know, uh, politically, our our membership breaks down roughly in thirds, a third Democrat, a third Republican, and a third independent. Um, And so, you know, in order to really serve that diverse membership, it's, you know, it's essential that we we maintain that that bipartisan uh, approach. You you have to. And it's so hard these days. And I joke that I'm a conservative that cares about conservation. So I think, you know, I definitely lean right in so many so many ways. But when it comes to you know, some of the, some of the hunting and fishing and outdoor access, public land issues and things like that. It's, it's, I think it's something that the right gets wrong in a lot of cases. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I think that that approach to, you know, working with conservatives that share our, our interest in conservation, I think, because it's proven to, to be pretty successful. I mean, we've in the last few few years uh, at the federal level, you know, we've enjoyed some pretty massive uh, wins um, with the passage of the Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, which provides, you know, full and permanent funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund, as well as some money for public land maintenance. Um, you know, the most recently, the, the passage of the uh, the Map Lands Act, which will help enhance public access to our federal lands. I mean, that was carried um, with, uh, you know, con- by conservative sponsors. Um, as well as uh, Democratic. Um, you know, there's a really long list, and whether that be at the federal level or the state level, um, you know, we're, 
we're willing to, to work with both parties who, who share our interest in conservation and public access. You know, when it comes to a show like this, it really helps the ratings if you get people really fired up and get two different sides fighting against each other. So I'm going to ask a really controversial question right now. Which is the better school for people that want to work in wildlife, Bemidji or Stevens Point? <laughs> easy, easy. Stevens Point all the way. <laughs> Dan went to Bemidji over there, so... Oh, okay. Wrong. over now. See you later. I'll see you next week. That's funny. <laughs> All right. Uh, Matt Lee is with us too. And uh, Matt is the Minnesota chapter chair. And uh, Matt, you grew up fishing and chasing pheasants in Western Minnesota. And then you had an influential trip to the Boundary Waters, I'm finding out. You also said that without access to public lands I would not be the person I am today was it that trip to the boundary waters that inspired that quote or was it public lands dotted across western Minnesota no it's it's public lands dotted across western Minnesota northwest Iowa Um, I moved to Minnesota in high school and uh, it was really influential for me to be out and be able to uh, hunt and and fish on lands um, in Northwest Iowa prior to the age of 16, 17. And then when I moved to Western Minnesota, holy cow, are there lots of beautiful uplands to be out there. And it's just that, that probably more than anything, the Boundary Waters is an extremely special place. Don't, don't get me wrong. That certainly had an influence. Um, that same summer, I had taken a back backing trip to uh, Wyoming as well in the Bighorn Mountains, another beautiful chunk of public land. So um, just, general influence of accessing public lands and waters growing up fishing it's just certainly kept me grounded in in life that boundary waters is a, is a special place i used to i used to call it one of the one of my favorite places on the planet it still is i don't i don't get up there as often as i i haven't been up there for a number of years as a matter of fact um, but we used to go there every year growing up as a kid canoe trips camping trips up there uh, a lot of memories from that growing up what was it what was it on that trip to the boundary waters uh that was that uh was influential for you you know probably mostly the solitude just we went out in a group of 10 or 12 of us at the time i can't remember anymore and we really didn't see maybe one or two other groups over a seven-day trip in the wilderness and that was just fantastic did a little bit of fishing uh portaging and paddling it was it was a slightly more relaxing trip than the the rest the other portion of our group had taken and so it was just just the time to decompress in, yeah. in nature and experience it was what impacted me the most no i get it uh it's, it's so nice to be up there and the the fishing and the camping you're right but i wouldn't include the portaging in there as much as <laughs> as the enjoyable parts that's just me <laughs> maybe maybe it's my time in the artillery that's uh helped me to <laughs> embrace the suck i guess like uh yeah what's you know what, the other end What's worse, carrying a yeah. 70 pounds on, uh, of uh, military gear on your back or taking a canoe straight up, uh, straight up a rock face in the Boundary Waters? Well, I haven't fortunately had to go straight up a rock face in the Boundary Waters with a canoe on my back, but uh, with what I did in the uh, artillery, I wasn't able to drop my rucksack. So uh, I was always carrying the radios and the batteries and 
it, it got heavy. There were some slogs at Camp Ripley through the marshes that were just uh, <laughs> I brutal. Bet. I would take that canoe any day. Uh, what What is it with the Boundary Waters right now? What's going on and what should we be concerned about? Well, right now we've got a uh, mining company, a Chilean-owned mining company that uh, had some leases within about three miles of the edge, three to six miles of the edge of the Boundary Waters, where uh, they want to dig and pull out copper and nickel mined or uh, tailings from the, uh, sorry, not tailings. They want to pull out copper, nickel laced ore from the ground. And in that process of breaking down that rock, it exposes a lot of sulfur. And when that sulfur, when that is exposed to the air and rain, it then leaches all that sulfur out into the environment. And you're looking at an area that's got a significantly high, high water table. You know, it's it's one thing to mine this copper in a desert environment, which is where most of our copper, I think, comes from in the United States. To uh, hitting it in the uh, boundary waters is a significant supply of fresh water for the state of Minnesota. Um, that watershed actually becomes the Rainy River, and which flows into Lake of the Woods. I mean, the, the, those are some Lake Vermilion. Rainy Lake, Lake of the Woods. Those are some premier fishing waters in the state of Minnesota. And if we're looking at potentially contaminating that water, oh boy. Um, not to mention just the volume of fresh water that's there. It's it, it just doesn't make sense in this environment with the technology that we have today to mine there. I'm surprised that Canada hasn't, has Canada been involved in that discussion then? Not to my knowledge, they haven't been too involved with that. They actually do some mining in this type of watersheds up uh, up in Western Ontario. Hmm. Um, they also had a huge mine um, tailings dam break several years ago in British Columbia. And oh, yeah. yeah, it's just acid laced tailings water washed down a whole river valley. It, it's, it's, uh, we're not there yet. We we do not have the technology to protect our environment and resources from this type of mining in this wet of an environment. And and to and break it down, I mean, the argument for it is jobs and and money, right? And the argument against it is it's sure. obviously clean water in our environment. I mean, we all we all like to create jobs, and that's an important sure. thing. But uh, man, it's, that's it's you know. In a lot of ways, it's, a, it's an argument of jobs and money versus jobs and money and where those jobs and monies are going to. Are they going to go to a, a, a billion dollar tourism industry in the state of Minnesota or are we going to put them into the mining industry where a lot of those profits are going to be taken back out of the state and even out of the country right now? Mm-hmm. I just I don't I don't see long term where those economics equal out, because if we do destroy this environment, not only can we only use it for mining? And once that dries up, we've got nothing left. Can't use it for recreation. You know, you brought up uh, something I think that's important to talk about right now, too, and that's the tourism industry in Minnesota and how important fishing uh, just itself is. Do you feel like sometimes our legislature or our, our you know, I think, I think our tourism, comp, you know, tourism, company tourism people are for the most part pretty much on board but sometimes i feel like they even miss the mark and and don't realize how important fishing is to this state is that an important topic do you feel that we need to make sure they they remember how important fishing is and maybe we should spend a little bit of money on it 
Oh, for sure. You know, a big chunk of our funding at the state level for the DNR comes from hunting and fishing dollar license dollars, right? And uh, you know, being involved with the uh, R three, which is a recruiting, retention, and reactivation community. Um, finding new hunters and fishermen out there is important to the future of the funding models for the DNR. And uh, right now we're not doing enough to create more hunters and fishermen. And if we need to get, you know, the state tourism board to put more into that, we should. Hmm. Do we need to keep the legislature from monkeying with, with regulations and let the DNR do its job? Because they do have good people in fisheries and wildlife to set regulations for what we can take from our waters and our lands. What did you think about that recent Minfish state of the state of fishing summit that they held where uh, the, the two points, the two points that they brought up were more, more public accesses on our lakes, which I, it, it was good to bring it up because I didn't realize that we had so many lakes without a public access on it. Um, you know, we hear so much about all this public water in Minnesota and how it's all, it's all owned by, you know, it's all, all the water is public and you can do whatever you want on it. This, this and that for the most part, I didn't realize how many were without public accesses. And the other one was about stocking, but, um, what does BHA feel about increasing public? I mean, obviously you must like public accesses on lakes. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's one of our, our tenants, you know, we, not only do we want to see more public land and better access and better maintenance of our public lands, we want to see more and better access to our public waters. So is that something that you would, you know, join up with Minfish or just kind of help the, help the cause out a little bit? Absolutely. We take a look at what their policy statement is and, and, um, as a 501c3 organization, we, you know, obviously have to stay non-political in this process so we can advocate for the uh waters the fish and uh the public having access to that that's that's where we need to evaluate that and if they need our help we'll certainly get on board with that and then have you guys uh, obviously you guys pay attention to what's going on at the capitol what do you think's been going on in this latest session that we should be aware of or concerned about maybe well right now there's a some differences going on with the environment and natural resources trust fund reauthorization um one party wants to wait and not advance that it's a going to be a ballot initiative to the state um voters that's the lottery money that we get where a portion of the lottery dollars go to uh fund public lands um, that's, that uh, constitutional amendment should be back on the ballot in 2024 for reauthorization. So the biggest thing I can say to all your viewers and listeners is that reach out to your legislators, ask them where they stand on this issue. Do they support continuation of the Environment and Natural Resources Trust Fund and at what level? Because right now we'd like to get it back to 50% of the state's lottery proceeds to go into the NRTF. And... Uh, there are on both sides of the aisle folks are trying to get their fingers on a little bit of the excess monies oh yeah um sf4131 if you're looking for an actual bill is there sf4131 sf4131 was the one that was most recently yeah that's important passed unanimously out of senate so so 50 50, Um, it used to be 50 percent what is it now 
It was, I can't remember off the top of my head what it is now. It was 50%. It got reduced after the financial crisis in 2008, and it's taken till this year to get that spending back. But the state's balance sheet has been in pretty solid standing since 2012 or 13. What it, yeah, well, there's a little there's a little bit of money there right now in, in the twins, a <laughs> little bit of a budget surplus going on right now that uh, sounds For like sure. sounds like they're all finding ways to spend money on stuff and ta- our tax dollars. It's good stuff. Anyway, uh, that ENTRF, of course, uh, LCCMR, uh, Prey Sportsman is kind of one of their projects that they really like. And that's one of the reasons why we do so much on on conservation in the show and um water water quality and things that are important to the environment uh, because we are funded from that lottery money as well too and that I mean that's a good chunk of money and that's something that the voters said yes if we're gonna have this lottery we want this money going to the environment in Minnesota so for them to keep chipping away at it and taking it and, and doing other things with it I, I hope people realize that that's happening that's something that they voted for and they're trying to take the money and do other things with it because I don't think a lot of people will be real happy about that I, I think you're right. I don't think people really do pay close enough attention to what their legislators are doing. Um, whether you're in the metro or you're in greater Minnesota, we need to pay better attention to what our legislators are doing in our name because these are our lands, these are our waters. Yeah, We need to have access and opportunity to use them. And I don't think, I also think, this is the last thing I'll say about it, then we'll move on, but I don't think people in Minnesota always realize just how good we've got it here. When you were in Iowa and you talked about the public lands, you didn't really, you didn't really say what it was like in Iowa, but you said your eyes opened up a little bit when you came to Minnesota. What's the public land situation like in Iowa compared to Minnesota? It's significantly less. If I remember off the top of my head, I think less than 2% of the land in Iowa is uh, in, held in public trust. Um, that's not much. I was fortunate. Say that again. Land and water. That, that's land and water. Two percent. Okay. Two percent land and water in, in Iowa. There's not a lot of lakes in Iowa, honestly. I, I grew up near one. But I also grew up in a part of the state that had a little bit more of that public land. And then uh, we had a family friend that was a fam, farm manager. And uh, that's one of the ways we were able to get access. So, well, but, I, I've hunted around... Uh, around the country a little bit too and I, and I run into people a lot that say oh you're from Minnesota you guys have all those lakes you, you do a lot of fishing up there do you have to do you have to pay to fish those lakes and I'll look at them and do I do I have to pay to fish you know uh, and in a lot of states the only the only lakes that they have are reservoirs or private ponds or something that they have to pay to access so we've got it pretty good here and this question could be for any of you guys actually what is the balance what is the balance between the right amount of public land versus private land? Because I do see how some landowners would say, well, gosh, you know, that my neighboring property, and this we saw, uh, this is, this kind of ha- played out not too far in Lacoparle County in recent years, where a landowner wanted to sell some of his land to the state and turn it into public land. The county objective, some of the other landowners objected. It was marginal farmland. It wasn't great for growing anything on. It was next to some some public land already, so it made sense to increase that public land. But I can see it. Say I got, I'm, I'm running a farm and I got a bunch of kids and they wanna go start their own farm. They wanna have their own land to, to, to grow crops on or whatever. Or for, for someone like me that spends so much time on public lands 
and rely on public lands for hunting and fishing opportunities. But there's a there's a part of me that's saving up. I want to have my my nice own chunk of private land that I can that I can recreate on and hunt and fish on and and manage it and bow hunt it and whatever. Where's that balance? You know, we're we all I, I feel like a lot of people would love to have their own little private wildlife kingdom, but you have to have public land. So we're is there is there a is there a stance that BHA takes on where that balance is? Uh, organizationally, we, we, we don't have a specific stance. I think it's really a conversation. And I think that conversation plays out at the local level and uh, in, in ways very much as you just described there uh, in, out in Lackaparl County, which is actually where I grew up. Uh, hunting on public land. Uh, but you know, uh, on the, on the, uh, on the flip side, you know, I think you have States like Nevada and Utah. I mean, Nevada's somewhere around 80% public and it works. And so, you know, I think the 80% Nevada versus 2% in Iowa, there's a lot of folks in Iowa right now calling for a bit more public land. Um, and, you know, I think that that conversation just it looks different based on where you are and the, the history there and um, the growing demands for recreation, I think, are really helping spur a, a greater call for more public land. And I mentioned the Great American Outdoors Act earlier, um, which, you know, is a, a, a source of funding for acquiring new public land that, um, you know, passed here just a couple of years back and will be providing uh, funds for new acquisitions here um, moving forward. Um, and, you know, I think in states like Minnesota, uh, the, the sales tax and having having funds like that available to acquire, you know, parcels of, of private land strategically where there's a willing center seller, excuse me, um, I think is super important. So one other question about that, and I think one worry that I even have at times is when you do turn something over to the to the to the government i don't always trust that they have our best interests in mind so i could see how someone might say well gosh we turn all this land over to to the state or the you know the government whatever they own this uh and yeah there's they're supposed to keep it as open for the public forever what what safeguards do we have in place to make sure? And, and to be honest, in Minnesota, you know, there's been discussions of reorganizing the DNR and discussions of changing how the wildlife management areas are used and to make them making them more open for for everybody. That worries me. It sounds like most of us have spent time in Lac Parle County, County, probably chasing pheasants around. If you go into a WMA you know, in Western Minnesota, and you start making changes to it in in the in the effort to make it more open for everyone. You start putting bike paths in there, or observation decks, or whatever that might be. You're going to ruin a lot of that pheasant hunting. So I worry a little bit about what could happen to some of our public land. So I could see how somebody might say, well, gosh, if the, if the state takes over this land, what are they going to do with it? What safeguards are in place if we do get more public land that that's going to be used the right way? Well, first off, uh, when the state gains that land, that becomes our land. It, it's not the state's. It's, it's held in trust 
for the people of Minnesota. It's up to us to hold our legislators and our agencies responsible for uh, maintaining and keeping those lands in good shape. If that means we need to advocate for proper funding to maintain the lands we've got, that's what we need to do. That's how we need to reach out to our legislators and be in contact with them that way. Um, but to your point on the um, uh, people management areas, I guess that, that I've heard the discussion about, I don't know how that's going to work. I know one of the, one of the things they've tried to do in the, in the Lac Powell County area is re uh, get um, prairie chickens back. Right. Mm hmm. They've really struggled to do that. The landscape just isn't quite big enough. We don't have enough public lands to really get all of that, those birds reestablished. Um, and so if you're talking about breaking up a wildlife management area, which it's in the name, it's there for the benefit of wildlife first and foremost, right? If you're gonna break that up with walking paths, whether they're mowed or asphalt, what impact are we going to have on on animals you know if we're going to add more off highway vehicle trails what impact will that have on the deer population on those lands right it's it's you talked about it a little bit earlier what's enough how do we weigh the use benefit versus the cost benefit on some of those things and what are we willing to give up and what do we want to keep as far as our hunting opportunities I haven't been sold on the idea yet of making wildlife management areas more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, and that's too bad about the prairie chickens. I know Dave Travel worked pretty hard on that and, uh, as well as a bunch of other guys too. And uh, I think they're, they're neat birds. And I've been up to further up North in Minnesota where you can, where you can see the remnant population up there and chase them around a little bit. Uh, they're uh, pretty cool prairie grouse. Um, what else what else is going on in minnesota that bha has got on the radar so there's a few things that minnesota uh chapter engages on if i'm talking to somebody and they're asking about the minnesota chapter uh like kind of the elevator pitch um we focus on cwd uh obviously the boundary waters protections and then you were just talking about wmas uh we kind of engaged a little bit on timber management on WMAs. Oh yeah. Uh, there is, there's folks out there who, because it's state managed would like to see those forests profiting a little bit more and, you know, seeing some, some income uh, be generated by those forests and folks that would like to extract timber from them. And again, we're holding the stance of it's a wildlife management area. It's designed to be productive for wildlife, uh, not for, for extractive purposes. Now, it's not to say that there aren't places where logging can't improve habitat. And in those places, we certainly advocate for doing that, but we think that should be up to the wildlife biologists to have that input and make those decisions uh, and, and really tell us where, hey, yes, this is a place that we can, we can manage those areas for timber and will also help wildlife populations. Yeah, because some of that logging can be real beneficial for, uh, oh. for wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, those are kind of the, the big three, like I said, elevator pitch that I talk to people about right now. Uh, chronic wasting disease, the boundary waters, and that timber management. Uh, we also are advocating for responsible use of OHV trails. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of really good OHV trails, obviously, with having 
to major manufacturers in the state. Uh, we don't want to say, you know, people shouldn't be out there with, with OHVs and, and ATVs, uh, but we do think there's some areas that should be managed and, and kept uh, for that solace and that, that solitude. Man, it is so hard to please everybody, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's so tough. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a difficult job to do, but I think it, you, you manage it on a case-by-case basis and do what makes sense and where it makes sense. You worked, um, when you brought up CWD, were you working with the Minnesota DNR then? Is that what you said? You worked? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yep. I was, uh, so as an intern at Iowa State, I was, uh, which let's be real. Those are better than both Stevens Point or <laughs> But I, uh, I went to Iowa State uh, as an animal ecology major and worked for the USDA there uh, in disease research. And through that, was able to do an internship with the Minnesota DNR in 2010 when there was kind of that spike of CWD down in the Pine Island area. So I went and sat in the trailers uh, over the weekend and, you know, you heard everything from uh, CWD is as made up as uh, Bigfoot to it is the worst thing since the Black Plague and, and every opinion in between. So you really got a, a range of folks. And that was, heck, 12 years ago at this point. Um, and I think it's been you know nothing but more politicized. Um, and so we're just trying to do as much as we can to stick to the facts, uh, see what science based uh, research can provide us while we try and mitigate it when we can where we can and you know i know you've talked about it before but as at this point a lot of that research points back to the captive servant farms a lot of those um, cases have come up near those captive servant farms and so us along with coalition partners some of the tribes are trying to work to do what we can to to bring awareness to folks about that and you know, maybe add some more restrictions around those farms. Yeah, I, I think the majority of them have been around captive servant farms. And I don't want to fault a guy for trying to create a business and make a buck, but clearly there's an issue. And we need yeah. to figure out how to, I mean, what is, is it just pay these guys and de- de- depopulate all the farms and pay these guys and just get them out of Minnesota? What is the, what is the answer? I don't, I don't know if there's a silver bullet for it. Um, that is certainly something uh, we've talked about, whether that's a mandatory or a voluntary buyout option. Um, but you talked earlier about being, you know, conservative, except for <laughs> when it comes to, yeah. you know, some of the environmental causes. I guess I kind of fit myself into that same boat. And when somebody asked, where do we stand? I tell them I'm a hook and bullet environmentalist. Uh, mm. You know, these are the things I care about, uh, you know, clean water, clean air, public access, because I want to go and use them. And to me, that's what a conservationist is, uh, you know, somebody who wants to go and use these places, not just to preserve them, but to, to use them. Um, and I think there's a lot of folks, luckily, that might fall on that side that are hardcore uh, hunters and anglers who maybe fall more conservative. However, they would classify themselves as a deer hunter first. Um, and I, I think that that's the crowd that needs to be brought aware of this. I know the, some of the conversations I've had, they've been very open to, yeah, this is where I fall, you know, as far as political lines typically, but, uh, you know, I'm a deer hunter first and, and we got to see those. I would rather have deer in perpetuity than see a few farms benefit in the short run. 
I feel like CWD is still relatively small in Minnesota, and maybe that's due to some of the efforts that have taken place to try to wipe out, you know, I don't want to use, use the term wipe out a herd, but that's kind of what they do. They, they try to eliminate the deer from the hot spots to try to keep it from spreading. Uh, states like Wisconsin have a much higher CWD rate. It doesn't seem like they're really doing anything about it. What else is going on to fight it around the country? What's working? What's not working? Who Who is caring about it? Who's not caring about it? Um, so, I mean, right now, because the University of Minnesota has the RT quick test that they're trying to to get you know work through, I kind of feel like we are at the forefront of it here in Minnesota. Uh, we sort of have an obligation as the conservation organizations in this state to be the be the leader on it because our university is leading on it. So, um, you know, some of the other you're right. Uh, Wisconsin is taking a, a you know, lesser approach, less aggressive approach. They see higher prevalence rate, rates on those deer. But if you turn in a deer in Wisconsin and it gets uh, test, tested positive, you know, they give you a new tag. So it incentivizes more people to not lose out if they're going to, you know, test positive. I think there's a lot of folks in Minnesota, uh, just anecdotally talking to them that think, well, if I don't get it tested, then I can assume it's not positive, right? Uh, and I think that if those people were willing to get them, you know, get them tested without the fear of it being lost yeah. uh, or possibly being able to re- reimburse the tag, it might be a way to incentivize more folks to, to focus on it and pay attention to it. I think that's a great idea, actually. Uh, what what else what else are you seeing in other states that could work here in Minnesota? Uh, maybe the, the what well, you saw some down Missouri with the sales tax down there. Oh yeah, so yeah, so in uh, and that was just I was down there turkey hunting, getting my butt whooped on public land birds down there. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was that one's from Minnesota, so I got lucky in Minnesota. But then I went down and uh, you know part of my job now is to see and learn the differences and the things that are working. Obviously, I've been involved with the Minnesota chapter since like 2016, uh, so know the Minnesota chapter and know our model very well. But to learn how public-private land interactions and the way that those different conservation agencies manage their wildlife uh, has been a real eye-opener. Like you talked about Iowa having 2% of public land. Illinois has 3 Missouri has a little bit more. But what they do in Missouri is that uh, one-eighth of every uh, – one-eighth of a percent of any money uh, generated from sales tax goes back to conservation. So to put it in, I guess, easier terms, you know, you go buy a fast food meal for eight bucks, a penny of that is going back to conservation directly. And that turns out to be about $26 million to the tune of $26 million a year annually that goes back to conservation. Um, And when I was down there, they have an incredible kind of mosaic that sort of mimicked, uh, you know, a blend of Midwest uh, public land where you see, you know, forests and marshes and some of the normal wilder wilderness scenes but then you also see some sort of like reminiscent of blm land where there's people out and they're able to farm it or graze it uh on still on public land in those states and then so they're they're generating revenue and by leasing those lands out for agricultural purposes but then they're also being able to turn those into i can walk across that ag field to get to that river bottom area to go hunt it um, and then I, while I was there, you know, getting washed out in the middle of the day from 
from uh, the rain, I took a little drive around and found myself on this slough that, you know, great, beautiful graded parking lot on the gravel road that had a duck blind uh, overlooking this marsh. And it was a permanent duck blind. Yep, you can see it there, uh, that their conservation agency had built that anybody can go and use. You just drive up, you park, you can brush it in if you want, but it overlooks that pond and it's public there for anybody to use. I thought that was a really cool thing that they that they offered the public. I wonder if we were down in Missouri at the same time because we hunted. I think we were. <laughs> we hunted through a midday thunderstorm and it was wild. Like I, uh, I talked to uh, to some folks down there who said that you and Corey were down there and I think we were probably hunting pretty similar areas. Man, it was nutty. Like there was lightning hitting all around us and we were walking, we were trying to sneak on these turkeys. I don't know if, I don't know if you can find any of those clips right now, Dan or not, but we were trying to find these turkeys. We had spotted them down this, uh, you know, um, kind of bottom land along this creek, this flat. And so we were down and the creek banks were pretty high so we could sneak down along them. And there was, there was places where we were walking through waist deep water as the, I mean, the waters were rising, the rain was like torrential downpour. We did not shoot a turkey, but it was a memorable hunt nonetheless. You're and in good company. <laughs> it, well, it was fun, yeah. And um, I think there's a reel on Instagram on, Cor I think Corey Loeffler shared it. I put it together, but I think Corey put it out on his page that you can see that hunt if you go see Corey Loeffler's Instagram page, you can see it. But uh, I will say this about turkeys down there. Every, we struggled. I mean, we shot a couple birds, but we struggled. And everybody that we talked to there, and we also hunted Nebraska, they all said the numbers were down. And I don't know if, if you heard the same thing or if you experienced that while you're down there, but it sounded like numbers were down down there. Yeah, I, I heard that too. Um, and I don't, you know, you can blame, I came up on a coyote at one location. I came up on, you know, obviously a ton of rain. So you can blame weather, you can blame predators, uh, you can blame, you know, hunting seasons. I've heard that if we potentially would push back hunting seasons to not be right in the peak of breeding, that would maybe uh, allow more hens to lay before, uh, before, you know, uh, males are males are shot, and that might increase bird numbers. Uh, you know, it's one of those things that sort of like ducks too. You know, you can you could call it because it's drought. You could call it because it's predators. It's probably a big you know swirling equation of all those things. Yeah, well, we saw a ton of raccoons when we were down there, particularly in Nebraska. As soon as you get an hour before sunset, the turkeys would disappear, and every single field had raccoons running around in it, and I don't think there's many people other than Sam Soulhold. I don't think anybody's really trapping rac raccoons much anymore. <laughs> right. uh, so maybe we need some more trapping on some ground nest predators. And then somebody else brought up something while we were down there. And that was that there's a lot more uh, fertilizer being used from that. That's, that's using Turkey uh, waste. Maybe is the right word for it right now. Right. And that these these turkeys or other birds are then eating it when they when they feed in these ag fields and that maybe somehow there's some sort of connection between the type of fertilizer it's being used and the turkeys i don't know i hadn't heard that one before but i i don't know it sounds like i think our numbers are down a little bit here where i'm at i've also heard that maybe we're you know some of these areas turkeys were introduced to 
in you know not that long ago and i feel like what i've been hearing is that turkeys they get reintroduced to an area they're hardy birds they're tough they're strong they populate the area quickly the population does really well and then the land realizes like hey you guys got way too many turkeys here and they, they just uh, they they shrink back down to the carrying capacity of that that right that area I, th- I think you're right on that too i mean for the last i've been hunting turkeys hard for the last five years and uh, i think probably in the last 10 we've started to sort of see numbers decline uh, but you know 10 years ago uh, which i didn't i didn't have turkeys 10 years ago uh, i started hunting minnesota when i was 12 and graduated high school uh, in 2008 and up to that point we didn't have a turkey season because there wasn't enough turkeys that far north hmm, so right. um i think we're we, we sort of missed that gap uh of when they were like in their prime and you know i've seen decent numbers here in southeastern minnesota um but i didn't really have any base of comparison so if if my baseline is already up here and then they're dropping to this carrying capacity um, yeah, then it seems like, oh, numbers are getting worse, but maybe this is maybe where they should have been originally. Leveling out. Yeah, for sure. So one other population that has done, I, I don't know if d- doing well is the right word for it or not, but uh, apparently in Montana, elk are doing really well. And there's a lawsuit now brought up by property owners against the Fish, Wildlife and Parks stating that they've grown the elk herd too high. Have you guys, any of you guys been paying attention to this and following this? Tim? Sure, yeah. Yeah, we've been following it. (laughs) And uh, we actually just recently uh, agreed to join the state in defense of the elk management scheme there um, and uh, fight against the lawsuit that's been filed by the United Property Owners of Montana they are arguing that the elk numbers are too high, that the legislature should have control over management, amongst other things. And um, we are working with a a coalition of other sportsmen and women organizations that, you know, share an interest in ensuring that, you know, we can maintain hunting opportunity up there and um, healthy elk populations and ensure that the fish, wildlife and parks, you know, management authority is retained. Um, and yeah, it's a, so a is, is this, big one. is this a situation where similar to what we have in Northwestern Minnesota on obviously a much smaller scale where there's some farmers and ranchers that are saying, Hey, we got, we got too many. I mean, there's too many elk here in Minnesota. They're destroying our fences. They're they're eating our, our hay. They're they're making it hard for us to operate our farms. Is that what's happening over there with this, or are these just people that want to build big homes and not have elk trample their nice lawns, or what's going on over there? <laughs> yeah, good question. I mean, th- this battle's been going on in a number of different ways. I think there is just I, I would boil it down to a real interest in. Uh, from some groups in trying to privatize the resource, uh, whether that be through set-aside tags for outfitters or for transferable landowner tags for um, the community 
there's been a, a, a wide range of proposals put out there that have been struck down both by the legislature and by the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. And then in response, I think those folks who were really pushing for some of those proposals, they didn't like getting no for an answer. And so the lawsuit has sort of been the last door. And I think that's that's what we're seeing right now. So this a lot of this has to do with how many non-residents come over there and hunt elk then. Mm, that's one of many, one of many uh, issues that's being debated as part of it. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, uh, I want to talk about the rendezvous uh, before we let you guys go here, because that was a big event that just took place. Uh, last year, I had Greg Qualley on the show right after he won the cookoff at the rendezvous with his son last year. And Aaron, it sounds like he won it again this year. He sure did. It was, uh, yeah, it was a big showing for Minnesota across the board, but the Cavallis did take home the, the trophy again this year. Uh, they made a Boundary Waters breakfast. Um so that was a, a raw pheasant egg, a corned venison hash. Uh, I'm gonna forget some pieces, but a wild rice pancake. Uh, and then the judges there, you can see in the photo, are all sitting on the canoe that they went out in to harvest the wild rice. <laughs> and they t- so really set the ambiance. If nothing else, the Cavallis definitely know how to make a presentation. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess in addition to the to them, uh, they, they tied that whole thing to the Boundary Waters connections and some of the recent wins that we've had in the BWCA. And, uh, you know, on the Boundary Waters piece, uh, Spencer Shaver and Lucas Leaf have won the award for the Sigurd F. Olson Award for Outstanding Conservation of a Wetland Habitat for their work in the Boundary Waters. So that's the Sportsman for the Boundary Waters guys. And then uh, Rob Driesline of Outdoor News won the Ted Trueblood Award for Outstanding uh, Work in, in His Writing for Conservation. So uh, Minnesota did very well as far as awards and uh, accolades brought home uh, from this, from this event, but I uh, know it was a great showing. Uh, we had, I, I, it's kind of a guess, but somewhere between four and 500 people oh, came wow. out over the course of the weekend. Uh, we had chapter leader trainings on Thursday. Uh, we did on Friday, our brew fest, which brought a bunch of folks in there in the photo. You can see, uh, that was sort of our, our awards dinner at the end. Uh, folks from all over the, both North, uh, of all over North America. So I spoke to folks from, uh, BC and Alberta, as well as, you know, every touch of the country. And uh, it's just a, a blast, man. It's so fun to go out and talk to folks. Uh, and if you're into turkey hunting or upland hunting or foraging mushrooms, uh, there, there was people there to talk to you about it. Uh, I talked to a guy from Missouri who I met while I was down there. And Greg and Pete were are, uh, auctioning off on the live auction a ricing trip with them to go and harvest their own wild rice and then have it bagged and then they can bring home a pile of wild rice. And this guy from Missouri said, man, I'd be really interested in bidding on that. And I said, jump in the golf cart with me. I'm headed over to see Greg right now. Uh, so he jumped in and he and uh, Greg got to talk for a while. And, and it's just that kind of connections of being able to connect one person with someone from somewhere else and that maybe otherwise never would have found each other in the room and, you know, putting them together and, and letting them go and nerd out on whatever the thing that they're interested in is. <laughs> so this takes place in Missoula. Yeah. Yep. This one was in Missoula. Uh, last year was the, was the first outdoor one in Missoula. Um, prior to that for two years, COVID shut them down. 
Uh, we had been in Boise previous to that at more of a convention center style. Uh, so, you know, we kind of worked out some of the bugs. Uh, there was about 60 to 65 uh, vendors that came out as well. So you had a lot of representation from some of the usual suspects as far as, um, you know, the, the First Light, the Onyx, the Mystery Ranch, some of those type of bigger brands. But you also saw brands coming out from that were local chapter supporters. Uh, Brewtech from Montana, uh, Drift West, uh the Ed Anderson's brand, uh, some of those local smaller ones that were just, it was really cool to see them kind of coming out of the fray. I know that there was a couple of other Minnesota brands who were sort of there incognito to check it out. And I ended up running into them and they're like, man, we had no idea that this was this kind of party. Uh, it's, it's fun. It's a lot of education. It's family friendly. And people just get fired up coming home and they want to take that, that fire back to their own States. And that's the coolest part of it. I didn't know it was that big. Um, how, how big or how many days is it? And then how is it just open to chapter members and do they have to pay? How does that all work? Yeah, no, not at all. Uh, so it's, it's open to the public. We usually put the ticket sales out online a few months ahead of time. And it's a, so it's a ticketed event. You would go in, buy your ticket, and you can kind of piecemeal together. If you want to go to the brew fest, or if you want to go to the storytelling, or if you want a whole weekend ticket, uh, we've got options for all of them. You know, we had our, our campfire storytelling event with, um, you know, room map of outdoor Afro, Mark Kenyon from the Meat Eater and Wired to Hunt podcast, David Wise, uh, three-time Olympian, Clay Hay is the season eight uh, of Alone winner. Uh, I'll speak at that storytelling, uh, and as well as like Trevor Hubs uh, of our AFI initiative. Uh, he uh, he kind of stole the show. I I was unfortunately working Brewfest when uh, when he was telling his story, but it sounded like he told a tearjerker. So I'm looking forward to seeing that video after the fact. Do we know um, when and where it is next year? Uh, no official word yet, but I know it's going to be in Missoula. Not quite sure on the weekend. Um, you know, one one downside we saw with it, it's it's just too tough to play with the weather. Uh, we had a lot of wind. We had a little rain. Uh, you do it this time of year, and it could be 90 and, and dry, or it could be 30 and snowy yeah. uh, in Montana. So um, there's talk at this point of maybe moving it to an indoor venue just to pl- not have to deal with those logistics. But at this point, uh, we'll just keep everybody posted and keep an eye out for it. Well, I'm, I'm sure there's a place out there, too, where you could do a combination of both and do some indoor events and some outdoor events or have some space that you could move indoor if it's if it's really totally. bad, I bet. Yeah, um, I think just having a contingency plan is the, is the plan. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, where can people learn more about backcountry hunters and anglers, become a member uh, or keep up on news? What should they do? Where should they go? So I would direct everybody to backcountryhunters.org uh, is our website, and you can break it down from there to uh, visiting under Join BHA is how you would sign up for membership, and we've got memberships there for individuals, for families, discounts for college students or military members, um, and then from that same page, uh, right next to the Join BHA tab, you can uh, click on the chapter and highlight the chapter that you live in. Uh, when you sign up for a membership, your address will connect you with all the information from the Minnesota chapter. 
uh, or Wisconsin chapter or wherever you're at, but you're going to get information from your localized chapter. You're part of the headquarters chapter, the, the BHA as a whole kind of mothership, but you belong to that chapter at which your address is in. Um, and then that can help you get in contact with your state. So here in Minnesota, it's just Minnesota at backcountryhunters.org. Um, and uh, I believe it's, is it uh, BHA underscore MN, Matt? <laughs> yeah, BHA underscore MN on uh, Instagram and Twitter. You can follow us there. We've got Pint Nights coming up in June in Bemidji at uh, Bemidji Brewing on June 10th. Winona Pint Night with Fly Tying. That's in conjunction with Trout Unlimited and Trout Rouse at Island City Brewing in uh, Winona. We'll be at Game Fair. Come out and check us out there. Uh, for both weekends of that and the first weekend of August we're also sponsoring an archery shoot at uh, South 40 Archers in uh, Lakeville so what about uh, we've got stations listening in uh, Wisconsin the Dakotas is there anything in those states uh, coming up that that you guys are aware of or would you just direct them to go to their their states chapters websites I would direct them to go to others go ahead (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you can certainly uh, reach out to uh, those states directly. It'd just be, you know, North Dakota or Wisconsin at backcountryhunters.org. I will say, I know that the Wisconsin rendezvous is coming up July 30th. Uh, they've got their state version of what we just did out at Missoula uh, coming up. So some seminars that are specific more to the Midwest, both on policy, uh, kind of skills stuff. And uh, they're, they're getting pretty fired up about that one. Um, do, we, do we have a Minnesota version coming? Matt? That'll, our version will be coming up again in January. We did a winter rendezvous last year. It uh, turned out to be a fantastic event. Everybody enjoyed it. It was out of Appledorn's Resort on Lake Mille Lacs. And uh, it looks like we'll be planning that again for next year. We don't have the weekend locked down yet. But uh, it always got to be a bit of a trouble for us. Ever, all summer long, everybody wants to go through the lake. Uh, yeah. all fall everybody wants to uh go hunting and then springtime everybody's looking to get back out fishing so it's tough there's, there's always to... something and i'm going to be one, really, right? one really cool part about our state rendezvous that we do in minnesota that's a little different than some other states um you know that we talk about the cavallis winning the the cook-off but what doesn't get talked about as much is that they actually had to earn that spot to compete at the uh, national rendezvous so they had to cook at the state rendezvous in order to win that, and then that earned them the right to go compete for us at the headquarters uh, or the North American rendezvous. So it makes it that much more impressive that they did that two years in a row, won the state chapter in order to go out and win the, the North American rendezvous. Um, oh. But actually one of the uh, last things that Pete and uh, Greg said at their awards acceptance is that they were retiring uh, as uh, the winners. They were going to go out on top and they weren't going to be competing next year because they wanted, you know, new, new blood, new uh, Minnesotans to have a chance at, at going to cook at rendezvous. So the door is wide open at this point. All right. So note to self, bring you <laughs> to cook off next year. Okay. Yes. No doubt. How about the presentation for sure. And a pheasant egg. Interesting. Yep. That's amazing. Very good. All right, guys. Uh, well, Aaron Haybison, Tim Brass, Matt Lee, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, thanks for the time today. Keep up the good work and uh, good luck. Uh, good luck this summer. 
Appreciate it. Thanks, Thanks bro. Appreciate Thanks it. So much. This has been the Finding Fur and Feathers Hunting Podcast, part of the Sporting Journal Radio family. Subscribe wherever you get podcasts or visit us at findingfurandfeathers.com. 852 million acres of public land, 147 million private properties, all in the palm of your hand. The number one hunting GPS app just got better. With hundreds of custom map layers, 3D and topographic maps, you can easily scout on the road or at home before you go. And now you can get important weather details, CWD detection, and even know what crops have been planted where. Get the most trusted hunting GPS app ever made. Onyx. Know where you stand with Onyx.